Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Ilsa J. Bick, who has just brought her Ashes trilogy to a close with the third and final book, Monsters. She's also the author of several standalone novels for teens, including The Sin Eater's Confession and Drowning Instinct. Monsters has just been published by Egmont USA, which is sponsoring this podcast. The world changed instantly in Ashes, the first book in Bix's trilogy. Electromagnetic pulses and nuclear bombs have knocked out technology and killed massive numbers of people worldwide. Most of those who survived are either the elderly or the young, and most of the young have been transformed into terrifying cannibalistic creatures that come to be called the Changed. Alex Adair, a teenager who thought she was dying from cancer, has somehow been spared from becoming one of the changed, and over the course of Ashes, Shadows, and now Monsters, she struggles to make her way through an unforgiving and violent world that offers few allies and a great many dangers. Uh, Ilsa, thanks for speaking with me. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Uh, So I have to say, these are among the more brutal and gory novels I've spent with time with recently, uh, young adult (laughs) or otherwise. Uh, Don't mean that in a bad way. But uh, did you ever have moments uh, as you were writing where you thought to yourself, "Uh, I can't believe I'm going to have this happen? Well, yeah, I could say yes. Uh, That's true. I I did. But on the other hand, I also kind of felt that nothing that I did was gratuitous, that everything that happened that was violent or anything that happened that was gory was something that happened for a reason because the narrative kind of propelled it that way. There have been some people who have said, gee, this is just so violent. And I'm thinking, well, you know, but the world is a very violent place. And I I haven't heard too many people, you know, try and say that very often about video games or graphic novels, for that matter, saying, you know, just YA is too dark and it's it's too violent. Um, I think that YA or any type of entertainment is an accurate reflection of the culture that produces it. Or my twisted mind, I guess, you know, whatever (laughs) whatever you you want to think. But I, I think that my experiences is a shrink. Um, and also, you know, some personal background stuff, uh, particularly in my family, um, not, not, you know, violence and stuff, but that my, my dad is a Holocaust survivor. And so I'm, you know, I'm the daughter of a, a Holocaust survivor. And I think that while I don't see that as, um, I don't feel a need to witness for that or anything like that. It's not really my story, but it's always been kind of background music. And I think that with that type of violence as a history and knowing that type of history and then seeing how quickly civilization devolves when there are crises and catastrophes, all you have to do is think about Katrina, for example, then I don't think that what I posit in Monsters or any of the books in the trilogy is really that much of a stretch. And where did the idea for the trilogy initially start for you? Was it the idea of the Earth as this radically transformed place or something else entirely? Well, what happened was I have been reading some young adult dystopian novels, and they were good, but I thought that one thing that really bothered me about them is that a lot of the times you see civilization as it's become, but you never see it in the process of falling apart. And you only see this future world. You don't really know how it got there. And the other thing that it struck me with one book in particular is how well behaved everybody was. These, this family kind of huddled in this house. No one broke in. No one beat anybody up. I mean, it was just, it was so startling. And I thought, you know, this is interesting, but I want to try and write something that 
feels much more authentic, like the way I think the world would really be if something really horrible happened. And I wanted to make sure that it didn't happen as a virus or a plague because I thought that had been done to death. So I wanted to do something that would take down civilization in a big hurry and also, you know, happen to kill everyone who could fix it so that you, you then have these people sort of starting from ground zero. And I wanted to see what happened when you just knock everyone's legs out from under them. Much less polite uh, apocalypse in this case. Uh, absolutely. No, no one is very polite here and, and altruism is in short supply. Hmm. Is it correct that it was actually an editor who suggested this was more than a one-book story? You are absolutely correct. I actually thought it was a two-book story, and I had the second book kind of plotted out of my head, and it was uh, one of the editors who had read it who didn't end up getting the trilogy who said, oh, no, this is a three-book arc. You just don't know it yet. Did that uh, free you up to sort of dive into these characters and what they're up against uh, in a more in-depth? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, that, that editor did me a huge favor. Uh, by saying that, and, and we knew each other pretty well, and so I, I trusted what he had to say, and I, you know, it did, and I, and I was really felt much, I felt much better because I thought, oh, I, I can't write a trilogy because everyone does trilogies, and everyone will say, oh, you're just doing one just to do one, but I really felt that I had a lot of story to tell, and that was another reason that I did something so radically different from the first book to the second book, and then went from just sticking with Alex's point of view, even though it's third person, everyone who notices the shift says, you went from first person to third person in the, in the second book, and I go, no, 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 go back and read the first book, it's all in third person point of view. And I did that deliberately so that I could then branch out to tell a much bigger story because I also felt in all the other books that I had read that a lot of the stories were much too narrow because you could only really follow one person. And the world at the end is is, is a huge story. And I really wanted to show multiple people's reactions and points of view and, 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 and broaden this out and make it much bigger in scope. I hesitate to say epic, but it certainly felt epic to me. Okay. Well, you know, the, the books uh, flow immediately one from the other. There's no real delay in the action. There's cliffhangers, of course, but then it picks up immediately where they start off or the pre- previous one ended. Uh, it's almost in some ways like a 1,700-page epic novel. <laughs> did, you, did you know from the beginning where, the, where this was headed? Uh, yeah, yes and no. It's funny because someone asked me, uh, well, there was a, a story, J- I think J.K. Rowling uh, told that she knew the end of Harry Potter way from the I don't know, first or second book or whatever, and she wrote it down and put it away. And then when she came to the seventh book, she you know took it out and wrote it. It's like okay, and I thought that's ridiculous. You can't possibly know that. But on the other hand, when I was plotting these out in my head and on paper, I thought I knew exactly. And I even said at the end of Ashes, I know exactly what the last scene is going to be in the last book. I know who says it. I know, you know, what happens. I knew all that. And then, of course, darn it, the book surprised me. And so when I got to that point, the book took many twists and turns despite my outlines, despite how well I thought about it and plotted it all out and all that sort of stuff. Um, By the the time I got to the end, that the end that that was there was not the end I had imagined. It just sort of happened. And I said, okay, Elsa, go with it. And so I did. 
Hmm. There are ver- quite a few uh, movie references scattered throughout the books. Uh, there's Alien, uh, Terminator, and of course Chucky, since some of the yeah. characters refer to the changed as Chucky's. Um, besides mm-hmm. serving to maybe remind readers that these characters could be us, um, are you a pretty big uh, science fiction fan? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I grew up on science fiction. That was the adolescent YA literature of my day. Hmm. Um, and if you if you read all a lot of the older, you know, I hesitate to say older. Can I strike that word in this <laughs> conversation? If you read the golden age of science fiction and, and the 60s and 70s, a lot of the protagonists are young people. Um, a lot of them are, you know, in their 20s, their late teens. And yeah, you've got your older people, too, the ones who command all the ships and stuff. But it's a, got a very adolescent feel to it mm-hmm. because it's it's very much about you know striking out new worlds adventure and things like that and that's really what adolescence is all about so absolutely i was a big i was and am a big sci-fi fantasy person but more into hard science fiction and i, I got my start actually in writing writing uh, science fiction Right. Well, so you've oh. written uh, novels in the the Star Trek and I think BattleTech right. universes, uh, among others. Um, I was curious: did, did playing around with someone else's characters and settings uh, end up teaching you anything about you know creating worlds and characters of your own, um, either in the Ashes books or other stories you've written? Oh yeah. In fact, I I've said that I got all my best training for all the work from all the work for hire that I had to do, um, or that I you know was lucky enough to do, because for all of that. Except for the short stories, although the ones that got included into later anthologies, I had to, you know, pitch. But for the prize winners, they were, you know, they came because I knew the established universes so well. And so the characters were kind of there and then I could sort of put myself into them. But for the, um, you know, the books and the other things like that, I had to come up with very detailed outlines. No editor ever told me what I had to do. They would, in some of the Battletech books, you have to have battles on certain planets or this has to, you know, the, the, the forces have to end up here by the end of your book. But everything else is really up to you. You still have to pass it for approval, though, in front of the editors. So that meant that I had to come up with a detailed outline and I had to learn how to plot. And I remember my first... Uh, book, my first Star Trek book, The Lost Era, uh, Well of Souls. I, I had this beautiful, massive outline. I used to write these huge outlines. I mean, we're talking 250-page outlines. And I remember one editor said, boy, all you need to do is add adjectives. You've got a book. But um, the, you know, I had to give the outline to my editor, and he said, this is great, but it's too straight line. You need to come up with a few subplots. And so I learned how to subplot. And so it was, it was excellent training. Hmm. And uh, how and when did you sort of transition into writing your own material, or were you doing a bit of the both side by side? I was doing it side by side. I was writing original mystery and science fiction at the same time that I was writing work for hire, um, because I, I really did want to branch out. Actually, I started out wanting to be an adult uh, mystery. That's that's really where I was, where I thought I was headed. The book stuff actually didn't happen or that the branching out didn't really happen until my editor for Star Trek did me the supreme favor of saying, you need to write something else besides Star Trek. Hmm. 
It's, he didn't say you can't write for me again, but he strongly suggested that I needed to start focusing on my own material and forget about writing only work for hire. He says you really you really need to branch out and do this because there's so much you could you could do. And to this day, I think, wow, thank you so much for telling me, essentially booting me out, <laughs> like go away. You know, we love you and everything, and you're a great writer, but go away. Um, but it was also devastating, and I remember being really worried for a while that I didn't know what I would possibly do that was as good as the Star Trek stuff I was doing or the Battletech stuff that I really liked. And actually, I was still doing Battletech and then the line evaporated, or actually MechWarrior, and the line evaporated out from under me because FASA got sold and the, you know, the series sort of stopped and I stopped mm-hmm. in mid-trilogy, which was really a bummer. So I just, I just started writing. Excellent. And so in you know, looking at your other books for teens along with these, you know, Draw the Dark, Sin Eater's Confession, Drowning Instinct, um, and as well as ashes in these books, do you do you see certain threads and themes that uh, come up and resurface again and again? Uh, one thing that kind of jumped up to me a little bit is maybe sort of traumas and recovery and how we sort of deal with awful situations, whether there's something very small or something on a sort of worldwide scale. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, you know, my own special obsessions also kind of come up again and again. One of my editors said, you know what, someone's going to write about you in 20 years when you're, you know, dead or something. I said, boy, I better live more than 20 years. But um, he said, you know, someone's going to write about your obsession, your fear of drowning. <laughs> like, you know, because you, you do this a couple of times. I said, I know, gosh, I don't want to drown. Um, but absolutely. And I think that um, the threads that that I talk about that, that you've mentioned, I, I certainly are there. And that has a lot to do with my um, you know, psychiatric background, um, since I have spent so many time, so much time, uh, and with so many people, um, dealing with the tra- their traumas and the aftermath. And I, you know, I've actually, I think I've probably wandered and crawled through more private hells and sewers than you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And, and seen a lot of people who say they love each other, but who are really bound together by hate. Um, and and just that the horrible things that they do to one another, and so I think that I'm always kind of looking at that and how people try to make reparations, or ha- and how even very good people make horrible decisions, um, and get in way over their heads, uh, and don't you know obviously don't mean to, but then all the things that could come from the fallout of that, and I think that that I don't know, I, I think that that's life, and and never nothing that I write, I, so far I have yet I think to write a book that you can tie up neatly with a bow and say, oh, you know, I always end it with something of an, of an ambiguous note. And I do that on purpose um, because I don't think that, that things are, are black and white. Um, they never have been in, in my psychiatric office and they, they sure aren't in life. Um, and I, I also think that the best metaphor for adolescence is a touch of ambiguity. It's sort of like at the end of Draw the Dark when Christian Cage, you know, opens that door and, you know, then takes that step into the sideways place and and everyone is waiting to see, well, what happens next? And and I've gotten letters saying, well, when are you going to write the sequel? And I, I think, well, you know, guys, that that's adolescence. That's you open the door of your parents' house and you step out into the wider world and, and that's the adventure. That's why there's a blank page at the end of every book. You write what happens next. So I, I do that on purpose all the time. I know it drives people crazy, but you know, or maybe I just don't want to get nailed down. <laughs> um, you also have a lot of uh, characters uh, who are veterans in your books, uh, either yeah. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, does that have to 
do with family background or making sure that veteran stories are represented or? No, I was in the Air Force. Okay. Um, I uh, was too poor to afford medical school and I didn't want to be up to my eyeballs in debt. And so my dad had been in the Air Force and I had you know, grown up with the military as a background. And so I was very comfortable and still am very comfortable with the military just in terms of, you know, living the ethos and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, well, then I guess I'm going to join the Air Force. I, and I think I picked the Air Force primarily because I look a lot better in blue than I do in khaki or, hmm. or white. Um, also because in the Navy, you know, God bless them, they're fine. But after your internship year, they ship you out on a, on a ship, on a, on a battle cruiser or something. And, and I thought, wow, I might know just enough to kill somebody. So I, you know, I, 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 I really thought, no, 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 I want to go to the Air Force. And I remember everyone who talked to me said, yeah, they have nicer bases. So I, had, I was in the Air Force, and I was in the Air Force actually during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we had, at that time, I was working at Andrews Air Force Base, and we had closed the base hospital and the psychiatric ward to, to everybody but active duty. So I saw a lot of active duty members un, in the stre- under the stress and after the stress and trauma of combat. And that one wasn't even, you know, all that terrible. It was more the anticipation but I came to really understand and sympathize with a lot of the um, stressors and very unique stressors that the military people go through and to have a lot of respect for them. I think it's easy to kind of look at them and say, you know, what are you people? And then I think, you know, these guys have a very tough job um, that not everybody understands. And I, and I myself, having never, you know, served at a time when there was a real crisis, came to really understand how the military also pulls together. I remember that we would, you know, we would hang and, and watch CNN just like everybody else, but it had a, really a lot of special resonance because you knew who was getting on that transport plane. It was somebody's, you know, you knew the wife or you knew the husband. It was the reservist you knew, that type of thing. Um, I also happened to be pregnant with my second child at the time. And um, I remember that I was, I had just delivered and they, you know, pretty much called me up. They said, how do you feel? And I said, bonded to my baby. Why? And they said, well, you know, you have to, you have to come back. We might be shipping you overseas. So, you know, I really, I think all of that, I I really understand. And I want to, I want, I guess I, I, I also feel that, that a lot of that gets caricatured by people or mis, misrepresented and misunderstood. So I don't feel on a mission to really talk about it a lot, but the military is always there for me too. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I see nothing wrong with bringing these people, some of whom are the older brother and sisters of the target audience that I'm writing for, into these narratives hmm. so that people can understand them better. Excellent. And uh, I understand you have another series in the pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, this is the Dark Passages series. The first book is called White Space, and the second book is called The Dickens Mirror. These are both coming out through Egmont USA. White Space comes out in February of 2014. This is this is a very quirky, bizarre series. Um, you know, I guess I would say it's a, it's a great blend of psychological horror thriller and some sci-fi although i'm very careful to try to say quantum no more than once you know in the the first book but i've always been fascinated by 
um, the idea that, you know, when you read a book, you've got dark symbols on a white page, but it's the, it's the, it's the white space. It's the emptiness around the symbols that give those symbols their meaning and that you cannot have meaning without also understanding what the white space is about. So if you want to understand what these books are, essentially think the matrix and inception meets Inkheart. And you start to have an idea of what this is about, because this is about life that's fallen off between the lines and the, the horrors and the ambiguities and the things that you can bring to life in this very nebulous space. Excellent. And does having that, uh, that on the horizon sort of help with uh, maybe the sort of bittersweet uh, side of uh, bringing this particular series to a close? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's, it, it's someone, I think it was Heinlein who said, no, or maybe Robert Sawyer, and maybe I appropriated it for myself later hmm. on, but, you know, I, I, you know, you're supposed to always, you know, finish a book and mail it and then whatever. But I think it was Robert Sawyer that, that added the sixth rule, which is, you know, and then always start working on something else immediately. So I've always had my books kind of lined up like Boeing 747s ready for takeoff. Um, and in fact, I actually wrote White Space in between um, shadows and monsters. So that was already, you know, started in my head because I, you know, I didn't want, I didn't um, do Ashes, Shadows, Monsters all in a line. I, I took time off to write other things. Um, and I, and I'm glad I did that because I think that if I were focused only on monsters right now, I would feel like jumping off a cliff because it, it is a very tough thing to say goodbye. I've never, you know, finished a trilogy before and certainly one not this intense. And so it's very hard to say goodbye to characters to whom I've become very attached and, you know, thought about for quite a bit of time. And um, I think I've left things nebulous enough that I know that I could continue to write another. I could certainly go on and write a fourth book. And everyone keeps saying, are you going to? And it's like, well, you know, I wrote a whole blog about this, about letting go um, and about, you know, the ability to, you know, keep moving forward. And I think that at the end of the day, it's like anything else. It's like when you let your kids, you know, leave the house. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when my kids leave the house, some, some people say, you know, how often do you talk to them? And I say, well, you know, whenever they want to talk to me, I'll, I'll certainly pick up the phone and talk to them. But a lot of the times I kind of have left it up to them to call me so that it's not, you know, it's not an obligation. It's something you, you really want to do. Maybe it's too shrinkly deeply. I, you know, who knows? But I, I think I feel the same way about these characters. I could certainly call them, but I think instead that they need to pick up the phone. And say, look, there's more of our story in, in here. Would you would you please tell it? So in the meantime, I want to you know focus on white space, and you know I'm right in the middle right now of of writing the sequel, Dickens Mirror, and I already know I'm halfway through two other books that I want to finish a standalone, and then another start of another series. So I I'm I'm sort of moving on and letting them decide whether or not they want to slip in that quarter. Excellent. Well, uh, congratulations again on finishing uh, this series, and uh, thank you again for taking time to speak with me. Thank you very much. Uh, Once again, I've been speaking with Ilsa J. Bick, whose novel Monsters has just been published by Egmont USA. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. Cast.